0: Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Folks, last week I spoke to you uh, about something that I, I shared with you had been rolling around in my heart that week, and I shared my heart with you, we spoke about the divine nature that we're going to read our opening scripture. In fact, let me start there. Second Peter 1, verse 2 to 4, says the following. I'm reading from the New King James. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these promises we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's our core scripture. I'm going to be working out of that again today, or, or using that as a platform for what I want to share with you today. But I'll be honest with you, I got a lot more traction from last week's message than, than I perhaps expected. Shame on me. Uh, a lot of people have come back and say that really touched me, that really spoke to me, there was something in that, that that really connected with me. And generally it's from the sense or the point of view of saying, there's this realization that this divine nature is in me, there's so much, many promises available to me, so much potential within me, spiritual potential, the, the presence of God within me, and yet my experience of that is so limited. And so I want to share some more on the subject today, because... As we looked at last week, the the more knowledge of God and the more knowledge of the subject we have, the greater our experience of it will be. The degree to which we will partake of the divine nature of God is directly yoked with our knowledge and understanding of who the person of Jesus Christ is. He is the epitome of the divine nature. If anybody embodied what the divine nature looks like here on earth, it was obviously Jesus. Jesus. You and I try, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we fail. And, you know, throughout history we see even Paul grappled, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and there's this internal wrestling, and we understand that there's things going on. But if we look at Jesus, we get a clear and an accurate understanding of what this divine nature looks like. You see, it's more than just the works. It's what is behind the works, You know, sometimes, even between my wife and I, sometimes she'll say something, and I'll take it completely wrong. And I'll misunderstand her completely, or vice versa. And it's not what was said, sometimes it's how it was said. I'll get upset, not because she said something to me, but because of how she said it, or vice versa. So last week we looked at, at, you know, the knowledge of this kind of thing and, and understanding it. We looked at that it is this knowledge and this divine nature that works in us that helps us escape the corruption that is in the world through lust so the nature of this world in other words what this world is like the spirit that grips this world is expressed through lust but the nature or the divine nature of God expresses itself through love love seeks to give lust seeks to get We often, as I said last week, we think that lust is just a sexual thing. I can lust after money, I can lust after power, I can lust after pleasure, I can lust after self-gratification, I can lust after what you've got, that's called covetousness. You understand, it's about what can I get out of this situation, it's about me, and that's the spirit that drives this world, that's the spirit of lust. But the spirit of love is a spirit that gives without expecting anything in return. That's agape love. It gives freely. And we spoke about how the arena in which this plays itself out in our lives is in the arena of our emotions. It's, it's way, the way we feel. It's in our affections, rather. Not just our emotions, but our affections. What have our affections wrapped themselves around? What is it that we truly value? What is it we consider to be important? Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes to the church, and he says, Corinthians, we've spoken to you openly our heart is wide open you are not restricted by us but you are restricted by your own affections and so if i come back to the point i was making earlier on about understanding that there's a divine nature that is within us that god wants us to live from and we 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 sense that we're not in the fullness of that we we're not experiencing or walking freely in that what is holding us back well by this scripture we can understand it's not the enemy that's holding it back us back and it's not God that's holding out on us, but we are restricted from entering into God because our affections are still wrapped up in other things, the things of this world, the things that keep us either entertained or just busy. You know, in the day in, in life, we're living in today, people are really busy, but today we wear busyness as a badge of honor. How are you doing? Oh, Busy. Because if I'm busy, that means I must be needed, I'm important, I'm valued because I'm busy. But the Bible never associates any value with busyness. We gain value and we're caught up in these things. And because we are so busy, or because we are, uh, our affections reach out and grab to so many things which are so easily available to us. We never drink from the true fountain of everlasting life. or We seldom drink from that fountain. And so the nature of God within us is not something that we can muster up with our flesh. It's not something that we can, you know, do because we have to or try and put on. That's called religion. But the nature of God within us is something that we can yield to. And when I yield to the nature of God within me, what happens is I begin to see people in situations from His perspective. And that makes all the difference. Perspective makes all the difference. It's, it's not just to do with my motivation. It's got to do with my perspective. Because when I begin to see you through God's eyes, I see you through the lens of love, the love that is willing to deal with. Your, there's, a, there's a scripture, I think it's in the book of Romans, that says, um, Suffer along with one another's foibles. You've got foibles, I've got foibles. But when I love you, I can see beyond your weaknesses. I can see beyond the things that perhaps irritate or grate me. I can see beyond your sin and beyond your failure. I can see beyond the color of your skin. I can see beyond your financial status. I can see beyond your position. And I can see a soul that is loved of God, that is made in the image of God, and that is worthy of honor. You see, now I am looking at you, not through what can I get from you, But I'm looking at you from the perspective that God looks at is, how can I honor you? How can I ascribe value to you as a person made in the very image of God? And this is where I want to pick things up this morning. We're talking about the divine nature, as I've said. Nowhere is it more clearly identifiable than in Jesus Christ. And I want to start with what I share this morning, going to one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. That's in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And it talks about the heart of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through to verse 8. And it's speaking about the heart and the mind of Jesus. And we understand that that Peter speaks about this divine nature that is within us, that we can partake in. And Paul says it this way. Philippians 2 verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. That's the way Paul says it. He's saying the same thing, but he's using different words. In other words, this is the way Jesus Christ thought. This is the point that he reasoned from. And Paul says, I want you to reason from the same point. Think the same way Jesus did. He says, Who, being in the form of God, in other words, like God, fully glorified all power and dominion, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself he was not made, he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. So this heart of Jesus, when he comes to give love and to show love to the human race, he doesn't do it as, as kind of lording it over them, saying, "I am God and I love you and you will love me." He doesn't come with all the, the flash and the bang. He comes in utter lowliness to get underneath and lift up. He comes with a, a, a meek spirit. And it says, And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, the death, even death of the cross. You see, the, re- the reason Jesus was able to do this is because Jesus was utterly secure in who he was. He knew He was the Son of God. Jesus had nothing to prove to God the Father, and He had nothing to prove to you or to me. That is the state of a humble man and a humble woman. They don't need, to be, they don't need your approval. They don't need your recognition. They can do just fine with it, and they can do just fine without it. There were those who followed Jesus, and they called Him Rabbi, and He loved and respected them. And there were those who called Him other things, and He loved them as well. And he, he, he wasn't fazed by these things. His reputation in the eyes of men was irrelevant. So he was utterly secure, and he didn't need the approval and the affirmation of men. And what that meant was he was free to do the dirty work that nobody else wanted to do because he didn't mind the association that came with it. You see, when you and I do certain things, we're associated that way. I mean how do we how do we greet one another? Hi, how are you? We meet somebody for the first time. What do you do for a living? I'm a doctor. Oh, he's a doctor, is he? On? What car is he driving? You know, because he's a doctor, he's studied, he's got this degree. You know. What do you do for a living? I, I I'm a, a, a neighborhood caretaker. Wow, what I sweep the streets. Not a prestigious job, but you know what, I drive past those guys with their blue bags and their sticks and they're cleaning the streets. And What a menial job. What a menial job. I wouldn't want to do that job. Credit where credit is due. Thank you, Lord, that somebody's doing that job. Don't you think so? Your waiter, having to put up with your nonsense complaints. The water's not what? Not cold enough, sir. Really? I'll see to that for you, sir. You understand, there's, there's these things that we ascribe value to, where, where we consider people to be important. And what happens is, when we tend to position ourselves in a certain... Uh, <clears throat> what's the word? Reputation. We feel the need to protect that reputation. Right? You feel the need to be certain things to certain people because of who you are. Oh, you, you, you carry the title now. Now you need to behave in a certain way. Or you've got the degree now. Now you... You know what? Jesus was absolutely free from all of that stuff. And that's why he didn't care getting down low to stoop down and to help those. You know, Jesus was not a poor man. Many people think he was poor. He became poor on the cross. Jesus was not a poor poor man. But where was his ministry? To the down and out. Blessed are the poor. That's where he went. Because the others wouldn't go there. Because it would tarnish their reputation. Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. The cast-outs of society. And yet he went and fellowshiped with them. Never mind what people would say. You're going to have supper at whose house? Zacchaeus. You don't know what you're doing. But yet Jesus' presence brought transformation to that man's life. And so many others who he returned blessing for. What about the lepers? Not the spotty animals. The spotty people. Lepers. Jesus went out and he not only associated with them, he touched them. He healed them. The woman at the well, the Samaritan, and the disciples are going, What are you doing? Have a conversation with this woman. How do we do? And then not only that, after that, they go and spend about a week there in that part of Samaria ministering to those who people. You get the point that I'm making here, folks. The nature of Jesus was not a respecter of who he ministered to. And he did not consider his own reputation. I think if we can just get beyond that one thing. To understand that we are so fully loved and completely valued by Jesus that we couldn't do anything more to earn more value and love, and there's nothing that we could do to lose any more value or love in his eyes and in his sight, we would be free from the opinions of men and what they thought of us. We still have a mindset that our promotion comes from people. No, it doesn't. I need to impress man so that he will be able to promote me. That's lust. That means I'm doing things for you so that you can do something for me. Love says, "I'm here to give, I'm here to love, I'm here to serve, I'm here to be a blessing, because I am blessed." Let's move on. Jesus, as we, yeah, this is, let's turn to the book of John now. John chapter 13, I want to read you another script, portion of Scripture. And we're still talking about Jesus and, and, and his willingness to, to do the menial tasks. Sorry, those of you who are online. Things are shaking. We're not having an earthquake, but the Lord is moving with power here. <laughs> you have to stand and hold it, Stephen. Stand very still. <laughs> so let's carry on. John 13, 12-15 says, so when he'd wash their feet, you know the story of, of Jesus and the washing the feet at the Last Supper. The disciples went ahead, they prepared the room, but they didn't prepare the servant for the customary job of washing the people's feet, the guests' feet. This was not done by Jewish people, this was done by others, this was done by slaves and that sort of thing. It wasn't a job that the Jewish people did, it certainly wasn't a job that the rabbis did. And Jesus did this job. We know He took off His garments and in His loincloth He washed the disciples' feet. And He goes on to say, in verse 12 of John 13, when he had finished washing their feet, taken His garments and He'd sat down again, He said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? Jesus wasn't asking, Do you realize that I've washed your feet? He wasn't talking about the physical act. He says, You call Me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Utterly secure in who He is. But if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus did not mean that we go around washing people's feet. In this day and age, that's weird and creepy. Nobody does that anymore. But his point was that we demonstrate his heart of love by laying down our pride, our reputation, and serving one another even in the most menial or demeaning of tasks. So there's a few areas that I want to just hone in on. There's four areas I want to just focus in on, on how we work out this, this, this love from getting rid of all the reputation, getting rid of the status. and the, where, There's four areas I want to focus on this morning. I'm sure there's many, many more. Uh, but for the sake of time, this is all I want to do. that I want to speak about, about where this divine nature works itself out and is most practical to most of us. The first one is, number one, in the home in the home in your home with your family let's talk about husbands and wives ephesians 5:22 to 25 says this in the new king james it says wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord what does that mean it means be supportive of your husband and devoted to him let me put it another way wives be fully given to your husband we're going to get to the husbands just now don't get upset ladies Be fully given to your husband. That's really what it means. Given to what? Given to support him. Given to meet his needs. Given to help him. Be fully given to your husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, and also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Likewise, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loves the church and gave himself for her. You see, Jesus gave himself completely for you and I. And if I want to be like Christ who gave himself fully for my spouse, I need to give myself fully to my spouse, withholding nothing. You see, the instructions are very similar. And you need to understand, in the context that Paul Paul is writing this, You know, wives, submit to your husbands. In in the very domineering culture that was in, that wasn't new, that wasn't revelation. Everyone sort of went, okay. But it says, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. (gasps) What? Us too? Yes. Wives, I want you to give yourselves fully to your husbands. And husbands, I want you to give yourselves fully to your wives. Forget about your reputation, man, of the house. Love your wife. Give yourself to her. Serve her. Forget about your reputation, woman, man. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are in your workplace. Give yourself to serving your husband. Here's some wisdom for you. Don't ask me how Christ-likeness or this divine nature is growing in my life. Don't ask me how, don't let me evaluate how Christ-likeness is growing in my life. Ask Helen how Christ-likeness is growing in my life. There'd be a good gauge, there'd be an honest gauge. Now, if that suggestion makes you quiver at the fact that me asking your spouse, how is Christ-likeness developing in your husband or wife, if that makes you quiver in your boots a little bit, then maybe you've got some work to do, as we all do. I'm a lousy evaluator of my own behavior. My wife is pretty good, though. You should give her a try. She'll evaluate yours, too. She's So that's the first place. The first place I need to work out a divine nature of love and of giving is Christ- and Christ-likeness is in my home. And let me just say another one or two things on this. You will find, all of us will find, that the people that are nearest and dearest to us, the people that we love the most are the people that we treat the worst. I've learned that one of the things most lacking in marriages today is common courtesy. Unbelievable, really, when you think about it, isn't it? That your, your partner, the one you live in the house with, the one you've got to share life with, is the one that you wouldn't bother to say please or thank you or you first or just common courtesy that you would give to most other people to actually hear them out and let them finish their sentence before you give your two cents. We don't afford that to our spouses and to our loved ones, do we? They're the ones that we treat the worst. And that's where, that's where Jesus needs to be worked out first and foremost. You see, it's very easy for me to stand in front of you and to look a certain way. At home is a different story, right? We all know this. Don't look at judge me me with your eyes. I can see you. It's the same for all of us. But that's the first place it needs to be worked out because one day when I stand before God, the first question he's going to answer me is, Michael, where's Helen? How's she doing? Because according to that same scripture, if I keep reading on, he says, Michael, I wanted you to present her back to me without spot or blemish. What's that freckle? You understand? First thing is my life in my marriage and my home and the way I, mani- I, 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 I parent my children and the way I demonstrate God to them. One of the most convicting thoughts I have is I heard somebody give a testimony of their child one day, said to them, Daddy, if God is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. But that should be the confession of every child. Dad, Mom, if God is anything like you, I can't wait to meet Him. Is that how the nature of Jesus is spilling itself out and working itself out in our homes? Because if it's not there, all the stuff that we do on the outside is fake. We can put it on. It's got to begin in the home. Point number two is in my relationships. I'm going to rattle off a few scriptures for you here. Um, you don't need to turn them, but you can, you can take note of them. Philippians, again. So just before uh, Paul writes in Philippians about what Jesus is like in terms of coming down from heaven with no reputation, laying aside his reputation, he says this. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Folks, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that beautiful? Imagine if we all lived that way. You know, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the incredible miracles that you do. Is that what he said? Did he say it's because of the many meetings that you have or because of your beautiful praise and worship? Jesus said the only this, the, the mark that you are my disciple is that you have love one for another. And this is what it looks like. You're not looking out for our own interests only, but we look out for the interests of others. We're not living just for selfish ambition to make a name for myself, to get that, that thing, that house, that car, that position. But I'm esteeming others better than myself. Jesus is very interested in your relationships. He says in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, when you are praying, in other words, you're, you're there, you're praying, you want to stand in faith, you want to believe God for something, he says, first, forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. In other words, Jesus has freely given forgiveness to every single one of us. But if I am not prepared to pass that forgiveness on to those who wrong me, the forgiveness stops with me. I don't get to taste and enjoy the release and the power and the beauty of that forgiveness. It no longer works in my own heart and life. Again, Matthew 5, 23-24, Jesus says, Therefore, bring your gift. if you bring your gift to the altar, in other words, your offering, your sacrifice... And you remember there that your brother has something against you. Not that you got something against your brother, but that whether it's a misunderstanding or whether you did something deliberately, but your brother's offended with you or upset with you, don't come and try and give an offering to me and be all holy. He says, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your your gift. Jesus doesn't say here that it matters who is wrong or who is right. It doesn't matter. You see, if the love of God cared who was right and who was wrong, then He would have punished each one of us for our own sins because He is right and we are wrong. But God is willing to overlook who was right and who was wrong so long as the debt got paid, and because of His love, He ended up paying the debt on our behalf. Isn't that incredible? That is what love of God looks like. That is how the divine nature of God works. And that is what He asks of you and I. We have to see that the love of Jesus permeates our homes and the environment that we're living in, but also that it permeates through us to our relationships with our colleagues, with our friends, with our families, that we are quick to forgive and we are quick to ask for forgiveness, that we are quick to take the blame because the reputation of who's right and who's wrong doesn't matter. What matters is you and me. Do you see how, how deeply this... This thing of our reputation, of us being right, is in our thinking and it's in our psyche. It's so infiltrated into the world. I know Dr. Phil always says, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? I think Jesus would say, do you want to be right or do you want to be holy? The third area where we can demonstrate the nature and the love of God is in the area of generosity. Generosity does not only pay what is due, it gives liberally. Amen? You see, when you pay an account, you pay what is due. Right? When Jesus paid for the sin of the world, He paid what was due, the blood of a spotless, perfect lamb. That was was due. But when He gives generously, He gives His love to us with generosity, His grace with generosity, His mercy, His kindness, His forgiveness, His benevolence. 1 John 3, 16-18, I'm reading from the New Translation, says this, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up His life for us. We also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Wow. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, uh, let's not merely say that we love each other, but let's show the truth by our actions. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Proverbs 22, verse 9 also says, He who is a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives bread to the poor. A heart that is gripped with the love of God, with the nature of Jesus, is a heart that is generous, Generous with its time. Generous with its resources. Generous with its encouragement. We need a lot more of that today. We need a lot more encouragement today. Everything in this world tells you you're not good enough. Open any magazine, you don't look like they do. Open any, you know, the, the measure of success is how much you have, and that measure is never quite enough. You know, people are feeling un, unloved, unworthy, unworthy. And yet we can come in there and speak courage and strength into people through valuing them. Be generous with your praise. Be generous with your encouragement. Be generous with your compliments. Say to the lady behind the till, "Who you are the 72nd person she's seeing today, and yet she still has the grace to go, good morning or good afternoon, with a smile on her face. Tell her she has a nice smile. That that may last her another 20 people. Do you get what I'm saying to you? what are you putting out when you leave the shopping center is it left in a better condition than when you got there are you generous with your praise when you've moved something you've taken something from the room shelf do you go and put it back in the right place so that somebody else doesn't have to do it you're generous with your time you understand what i'm talking to you about here there's an air of generosity that is in the heart of the believer it's in the blessing that keeps on giving and that generosity by the way begets more generosity And more generosity begets more generosity because that's how the kingdom of God works. And finally, we can see the degree to which the love and the nature of Christ has been formed in our hearts and we can see the degree to which we have been set free from the need to be uh, respected by the people around us from our reputation in number four, how we treat the unlovely. That's the fourth area I want to talk to you about today. How we treat the unlovely. Those who don't look like we look. Those who don't smell like we smell. Those who are not easy to love, maybe because they don't look so good on the outside or because they treat you badly because of what's going on on the inside of them. I'll give you a couple of scriptures here. James 2, verse 1 to 4 says this, My dear friends, don't let public opinion Influence how you live out your glorious Christ originated faith. Isn't that beautiful? That's from the message. If a man enters a church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, Sit here. This is the best seat in the house because it's right next to the offering basket. Sit here. And you either ignore the street person or you say, well, you better sit here in the back row. Uh, haven't, haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Isn't that incredible? In other words, you've made character judgments. You've judged the value of that person, the heart of that person, simply by looking at what they look like on the outside. You know, if, if Samuel, the prophet, followed the same way of thinking, David would never have been anointed king. The greatest king Israel ever had before Jesus would have been overlooked. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for for I have rejected him. He's talking about David's brother. He says, The Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that incredible? He looks at the heart, even of the lowly. You know, when Jesus, the King of all glory, came to this earth, He didn't come in glory and splendor. He came in a stable, was wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. Have you ever thought that that is why the door to Jesus is always open? He was literally born in a barn. Thank you. I'll leave that one there. You see, you and I, you and I don't need recognition from others to be amazing kingdom ambassadors. You don't need a ministry. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need a title. One of the things that really grates me these days is guys who run around and they need to be addressed as apostle this or doctor that or doctor apostle bishop pastor evangelist. His name is. You know, the letters in front of his name and after his name are longer than his name itself. All these titles, all this, Jesus is just not in that. He just simply doesn't care. What He cares about is how you and I, how I can love my wife, and how my wife can love me, how I can love and demonstrate love to my children, how I can be generous to my family and to those around me, to those God has called me to serve, whether it's in the workplace or ministry, with my time, with my love, with my energy. He looks at how I manage my relationships and what it is that I am willing to endure and to overlook for the sake of a relationship. We're very quick to walk away from relationships these days. And I dare say, even in the church, we preach that message. Yeah, distance yourself from those kinds of people. You know, God loves those people. Now, if they're a bad influence on you, that's a different story. But then grow up, for goodness sake, because those are the people God wants to send you to. Stop using that as an excuse. Grow up, get the heart of Christ, sort out, your, sort out your stuff, sort out your insecurities, because as long as you are insecure, you're useless. I can't use you, because you're so insecure that if I send you somewhere, you're going to make it about yourself. And also, if I want to send you somewhere, you just won't go, because you're worried about what people may say or what people may think. Folks, you don't need a degree, you don't need a title to love the person next to you. You don't need a, a fancy education. Let me read to you one, port, one, one verse of Scripture. Somebody spoke about it last week, Friday, and it's, it sat with me. It comes from the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 3 or 4, where, where Peter, yeah, Acts chapter 4, Peter, had now, the, Peter and John, they come into the, the past the beautiful gate, and there's the man, there's the beggar, right? You know the story, and the beggar looks up at them, and he says, you know, can I have alms? And they said, silver and gold we do not have, but such as we have we give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know that story, right? And the guy rises and he goes walking and leaping and praising God. And, of course, this is a big deal because now this flies in the face of the Pharisees. So they get them arrested. And the next day they start talking to them. And Peter and John rebuke them in this assembly. And they say, you know, Jesus is the one, he's the cornerstone that the builders rejected and that you have rejected. And then in John, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. They realized because of how they acted and how they behaved. In this case, it was through boldness. In, in a, in a in the moment, the day before, it was through the power of God being released through them in an act of love. The question is this. As you and I go through our daily life, can people see that we have been with Jesus? What a question. Because His love has so captured our hearts that when I look at the people around me, I see them with love i want to bless them i want to help them i want to provide for them i want to to do what i can to show the great incredible love and compassion that god has for each one of them jesus is aware of your plight and jesus is aware of the plight of others but i am always surprised that when i set my heart to helping others in their plight in their difficulty I'm always amazed that my difficulty seems to become so insignificant. If i would just lift my eyes. The nature of Jesus, the divine nature of God that lives within you and me, looks to love, to give value, and to give honor to others, regardless of their stature, regardless of their behavior, even at my own cost. And I want to leave that with you today because you're gonna have to evaluate that for yourself. You're gonna have to look at your own heart. Maybe ask your spouse, maybe ask your friends, maybe ask your loved ones, is there an area that you could see that I can grow in this area of, of loving others and of being gracious to others? But this is the true nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's an incredible adventure where we get to walk in and experience His love and His goodness in us and for ourselves Eat fully of the table of the Lord and be filled with His grace, with His mercy, with His love and His kindness. So full that we take extra and are able to give it away to others. You know, there's no limits to the table of God. You know, you go to the party, there's always that person with a big handbag. Yeah, I once went to a spit braai. There was a lady who came prepared with a black bag to take home the carcass for her dogs. I mean, that's, that's ready, brother. That's like, you can prepared. prepare. That's some faith there. Well, I want to tell you something. When you come to the table of God, doggy bags are welcome. Eat all the grace that you need. Eat all the love that you need. But don't leave empty-handed. Take a doggy bag, because along the way there's going to be... How many of you have done this? You, you, you didn't finish your meal, or you're a bit full at the restaurant, and you get, you take, instead of taking it home for yourself, you take it along, and you give it to somebody else who, who may need it, who may not have a meal like that in days. And you feel good about it, right? How about you do that with the love of God? Go and eat of it. Go and enjoy it. And take some away so that you can share it with somebody else. Be quite deliberate with it. When you have that food, right? When you have that doggy bag, you're quite deliberate in finding, I want to bless somebody, man. Why are there no beggars around today? You go and find them. Well, if we had that attitude with the grace and love of God, wouldn't that be incredible? Amen. Stand with me. There's a song I want us to sing in closing. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.